This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audiences. Welcome back to Mutual Presents. I'm Jack Ward. This week, we're up to our third session from last July's Saturday MadCon virtual event. This week, it's identifying the field with host Jeffrey Billard, and the panel includes Ellie Matlin, Michael Wilhelm, Larry Groby, and Robert Arnold. So welcome. Uh, we just uh, got done with a session on uh, what do you once the script is done, what do you do? And and uh, now we've brought together this panel to uh, talk about identifying the field, which is uh, how do you actually going to do your show? Are you going to do it satellite? Are you going to do it live on stage? Are you going to do a hybrid? Are you going to do it like Larry does it with a uh, project Audion, which I can't tell you how much I love. Um, you know. Uh, it's so amazing. So uh, just let's introduce ourselves. I'll, this is my third time on today. So I'm just going to say real quick, uh, I'm Jeff Billard. I'm a retired theater professor uh, and uh, been doing audio drama since the early 80s. And uh, let's pass it over to uh, Ellie Maitland, who I'm so happy to see you back again because we had so much fun yesterday. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. And uh, thanks welcome. so much for stepping in today as well. No, um, thank you. The best uh, moderators make you feel interesting. And <laughs> I, feel so, I feel so special right now. You are. You are. Yeah, thank uh, you. Yeah. So, hi, I'm Ellie. I am a Chicago-based human Foley artist, and my concentration is on stagecrafts. So I focus on Foley for um, theater, on, uh, theater on the air, radio theater on stage with an audience. So that means designing and choreographing and performing. And uh, I have been active in audio drama since about 2011. Um, I have designed and or performed uh, fully for somewhere over 80 productions at this point, mostly in the Chicagoland area. Um, I've been Foley artist in residence for companies uh, including Wildclaw Theater, uh, a horror-centric uh, theater company based in Chicago, and Locked into Vacancy Entertainment, a serialized monthly comedy uh, show here in Chicago from the before times. Um, and I work anywhere that'll let me. Yes. So listen, because Ellie's amazing. And Larry, over to you. Hi. 
<clears throat> well, I'm glad to be on my uh, my one and only panel today. This is great, and I think it's awesome that Jack has been able to put this together and uh, gather people from across the country and and kind of you know do this cross pollination thing. Uh, I did a first radio show, uh, old time radio show, in I guess about '81. Uh, and that was the kind of, that was the days when doing that meant you were doing it in front of a live audience. Uh, <clears throat> you know, it was, it was still enough old people out there who could remember it and they, and it was nostalgic for them to, to see Jack Armstrong performed in front of them. Uh, the nostalgia factor has, has long gone, uh, because there's just a handful of people who were, around you know who actively can say oh yes i remember the shadow um but i stuck with it uh, there was a uh, museum in town for years uh that was a broadcasting museum uh bill bragg of yesterday usa today uh, you, some of you may know that name uh, was the founder of that museum and i got a chance to work with some great equipment i got a chance to learn all the vintage techniques because because the museum had all these ribbon mics and sound effects doors and things hanging around which was lovely and i got to work with some really great actors and a few who had been in the golden age and uh look at this yes. look at this oh yes <laughs> nice that that's that's a good one for that size we had one that it was from the voice of america and oh, really and it was an authentic full-sized one that was on wheels it was about five feet high it had a sort of a, a reverberant uh piece of wood around it too it was fabulous oh i bet uh, i i would kill to find that door again um anyway got great chances to work with a lot of interesting people when the museum shut down the people who liked doing the shows we kept going occasionally but eventually i had scripts so I said one day, basically, let's, we ought to put these on this internet thing. And that was about 20 years ago. So genericradio.com went up with scripts that had been collected. And uh, I still get submissions weekly and uh, we put them up and that's, that's kept going. Uh, Project Audion uh, came about when I was doing a live show last year and it got canceled on the second performance uh one you know because the libraries were closing and that's where that was going to be done for three weeks and uh somebody put a, a an iphone up on a ladder in the back of the uh, auditorium and filmed the show and i drove home and said that looked that had a we had more people watching than we did watching in person and so it evolved into well who can we invite and how can we do this and uh we, I tried to do one every other week for a while, and then that was killing. So once a month is once a month is fine. So, well, that, that's great. I would uh, two things, and we're going to get into the project Audion because I'm so I, I mentioned that in the previous panel. I'm so uh, enamored with that and how you do it. I, I'm I'm in awe of it. Um, but also with generic radio. Uh, it's great. Larry has that website, and, and uh, it's a great place to go for scripts. If you're into the and, older and, stuff, yeah. Yeah, the older stuff. And if you're doing like, like we do for Sonic Summerstock in the summer, we do recreations. Like um, I'm doing Hallucination Orbit for next summer, and I found it right on your script. And I wrote it right in my credits, Larry. Credits, <laughs> Larry <laughs> Groby, you. Generic Radio. <laughs> thank you so much. Because if I had to transcribe that, it wouldn't take me forever. So um, I appreciate that. 
So thank you, Larry. Glad you're here. Over to my new good friend, Bob Arnold, uh, to, uh, who I just listened to some of his stuff, and it's amazing. So we're so happy to have you. Bob, tell us a little about yourself. Sure thing. Hey, everybody. Uh, good to see you this morning. It's early afternoon for me, actually. I'm calling in from uh, beautiful Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, so I, uh, I started a group called Chatterbox Audio Theater way back in 2007. Yep. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, back when it was, you know, there were just a handful of people uh, who I could find who were doing this stuff and ran that for a good 10 years. We closed down in 2017. And then I, uh, and by the way, Chatterbox was a nonprofit organization. We had a board, we had, you know, mm. multiple people working on it. So it was a, it was a kind of a larger uh, grassroots operation. And then closed that in 2017, found myself missing it. And so uh, earlier this year, came back with a new uh, a new group called Spoken Signal Audio Drama. And we have released our first uh, full-scale production, which is a, a five-part horror comedy miniseries, uh, which is out there now for you guys to listen to. So I'm, I've been producing this stuff for over a decade, um, all, all, you know, labor of love type stuff with friends, with volunteers, um, and then with, with friends around the country. So I'm excited to be here and, and geek out about it with all of you. I'm glad you're here. And I I assume you're talking about Haunting of Waverly, Waverly House, right? I've, yes. I've listened to the first two and absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. It was a great twist in that second one. I won't give anything away, but I loved it. Great, great job. And you. so glad you're here. Bob. And Thank now you. we're over to Michael Wilhelm. Michael, tell us about yourself. Hello. Um, I'm actually... Uh, I. I actually grew up in the 70s during the resurgence of the audio drama um, that was what's happening at that point. Um, there was a CBS Radio Mystery Theater. There was the Mutual Radio Playhouse. There was, you know, a local radio station there was uh, broadcasting the Lone Ranger in the shadow every Monday night. And um, I fell in love with it. I thought this is, it's a very intimate medium. And I loved acting. I come to this from an acting background. Uh, we even started an audio drama series um, back in the late 70s on our local um, radio station, public radio station, that lasted for a couple of years before I went off to college to, to learn how to actually do it. Um, and then as I was acting, um, I always loved listening to those old shows and stuff like that. And I always thought, you know, audio drama would be really great. Um, as I pursued my acting career, however, I found that I was actually doing a lot more temping than I was actually working as an actor. Um, and I thought, you know, this would make a great TV series. Um, we could, you know, show the guy going from one job to another. That would be really kind of cool in, in a TV sort of sense. But then when I moved back to Indiana, where I'm currently located, that pretty much fell to the wayside until somebody gave me a recording of a BBC sitcom that was done on audio. And I fell in love with it. And I thought, we can do the temp that way. And I happened to be associated with a theater company here in Fort Wayne called uh, the um, uh, All for One Productions. And I, so I had a whole corral of actors that I could draw from. And so, you know, it was kind of one of those Judy Garland um, moments where, oh, hey, my uncle has a barn, we'll put on a show. And so <laughs> we all got together and, and we put together this, uh, this program. We, I think we posted it uh, in 2008 and we have been slowly tinkering at it ever since. Fantastic. So we have a wealth of, of information uh, on this panel today. So what we're going to do is um, we'll go for till the hour is up and then we'll have time for questions. So 
those of you who are listening in the audience, please uh, type your questions into the um, question and answer format, and then we'll get to those uh, and try to answer them all before uh, our time is done. But what we're here to talk about is uh, the technical format. So um, how are you going to record it? How are you going to present it? So I want to start, Bob, with you, if I could, uh, with, with uh, spoken uh, signals. How do you guys go about recording? What format do you use to record? I know you have your own studio, right? Is that correct? I or have, did? yes, I, I do. I have a, well, I have a, I'm very fortunate. I have a makeshift studio in my backyard um, right now. And it, it's, you know, it's half of a detached garage. It's just a nice cozy space. Um, but actually the person who owned this house before me built it for, for his band. And so oh, nice. sort of moved in and took over. Um, so I, right now, yeah, Spoken Signal is really, you know, friends in the backyard in a small studio space. When we were doing Chatterbox, we had uh, kind of every, every option you can think of. So when I started, it was just, you know, in my living room, we would hang blankets on the walls to try to deaden mm -hmm. the sound. So I've got all these great pictures from, you know, 2007, 2008 of just the, you know, mismatched blankets all over and people holding blankets yep. over their faces oh, to yeah. try to muffle things. Um, and then we, after we sort of outgrew that, we, we became the sort of nomadic company where we would just find different spaces and, you know, move in for a week, um, which usually involved bringing in all of our stuff, setting up, and then after two, three hours of work, taking it down, pulling it all out to our cars, Till the next night do it all over again so did that for a couple of years and then managed to find here in memphis a, a space that worked great as a kind of a dedicated studio space and got that set up and mostly worked out of there for years but we've also we did we've done live stage performances um, we've done live to broadcast performances and we've done just a, the tiniest bit of what i would consider remote recording which by which i mean we've taken some stuff outside and Try to make it work. So a, a little bit of uh, a little bit of everything in my in my past. Great, Michael. How about you? How do you guys record the temp or we go live in front of an audience? Mm -hmm. And um, when I first wrote the script, I was thinking, you know, um, we can find a studio somewhere. We got a place here in Fort Wayne called Sweetwater Sound, and they've got all sorts of sound stuff. I don't know what the cost would be. It probably be prohibitive according to our budget, which we actually don't have. Um, but I sent the scripts off to my um, artistic director and she said, oh, well, what we can do is we'll set up uh, a space in a coffee shop and we'll have everything set up there and people can come in and watch it, drink their little coffees and you guys can do your show and that'll be really great. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know. That's going to be kind of, you know, um, but it actually worked out quite nicely. It was a little bit of a headache setting it up. Um, I know that a lot of the live sound effects that we first used, um, well, we were new with this, weren't exactly as strong as they could have been. And so later on in cleanup, we would go in and we would replace them with, you know, recorded sounds and stuff like that. So that the finished product was a little bit cleaner, but everybody in the audience, uh, everybody in the audience seemed to really enjoy it. And the actors seemed to really enjoy it. And um, as insecure as I was with the script, I thought, oh boy, you know, we do this and this turned out like this. Is anybody going to ever want to do this again? And afterwards, they were really like, yeah, I can't wait till we do this again. This is really going to be great. And I thought, wow, okay, I think we've, we've hit something here. And so that's how we do all of the shows. Now, we're kind of nomadic in the fact that we, we move around from different coffee shops to a TV station to a theater, you know, each time we do it. But, it, you know, it keeps it exciting and fresh. 
Thank you. Ellie, how about you uh, when you're recording? Uh, can we say performing or producing? Rather we than can say recording? whatever you want to say. I'm with you 100%. Wait. Cool, because I've got a little bit of a hybrid yep, of um, right. experiences mm -hmm. thus far. Um, and uh, speaking as the sound person's, uh, from the sound person's perspective, there's a lot that goes into um, uh, pre preparation, like paper tech is basically uh, the most important preparation that I can do for the big show. Um, and I've got some documents that I'd love to share my screen and like walk y'all through for the way that I, I would love this. you to and you I can write... tell people what paper tech is yeah okay so paper tech is talking through with um your director and any anybody in your tech team sound engineer uh lighter lighting designer if you have it stage manager if you have it these are kind of luxury items in the way that a lot of these productions right. are put together uh because again a lot of these are unpaid opportunities done for the love um and at the risk of repeating myself from yesterday, uh, Jeff, I'm going to also speak to Michael's. Uh, we did it in a coffee shop. Um, yeah. When it comes to theatrical venues in Chicago, uh, theater practitioners are to venues what potheads are to bongs. We'll make them out of anything. And so we've seen <laughs> lots of productions that are uh, in, in black boxes, but also in bars, in cafes, uh, on street corners. Um, I My heart goes out to anyone that does live uh radio theater with practical sounds uh outdoors because there are just so many nightmarish variations in everything that you want to go perfectly um mm. and i know perfect is the enemy of good which is part of a longer conversation actually when it, it comes is. to <laughs> sound design yeah. aesthetic in yes. theater versus cinema and that middle ground which is podcasting at this point because when it comes to theatrical sound design, there's a weird kind of cognitive disconnect going on where the audience is less likely to meet you in the middle uh, immediately with theater sound uh, rather than theater, any of the other artistic disciplines. Like they're expecting probably cinematic sound for the most part. And that's because a lot of that tech has gotten democratized and we have all of these sound banks, all of these collections right. of Foley from the past century that people are remixing in their own ways. And so introducing the idea of everything being practical and organic is, uh, is new for a lot of audiences these days, which is interesting. Also, um, I'll say I'm an outlier in that my production aesthetic, my performance aesthetic is 100% analog. Um, Nice. I try to perform and produce everything live, which doesn't mean there aren't effects put on top of things for nice. reverb or pitch shifting or things like that. Mm -hmm. But I want the audience to have a visible, recognizable connection with everything on stage, making the sounds that they are hearing. So pre-recorded doesn't enter into things, uh, if at all possible. Um, that does make things a lot more challenging, though, when it comes to pre-production. It certainly does. It certainly does. And yeah. But I know that when I've done it live on stage, uh, you know, it's that analog feel that I think gives it what it has because it's, you know, when you're up there, like when you showed the, the door, right, the Foley door just a second ago mm -hmm. and with the knobs and the knockers and everything that's on there, you know, when you see it in the last time, uh, Jeff Adams talked about wind machines and that type of stuff. So when you see people up on stage, and they're a character, like we talked about yesterday, I think I think they're a character in, in the show. 
because they're up there clanking stuff and spinning, you know, bike tires and, you know, doing what hitting, you know, crash sheets and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's, it's part of the show, but you talk about the challenges because part of it's talking about challenges of doing it live. And one of the things with paper tech, which I'm so glad you brought up is because very often in theater, when we sit down to do a paper tech, uh, you know, you've got the lighting designer, you've got the sound designer, you've got, you know, and the stage mate, usually a stage manager in my, as a director, I would sit there, but it's usually the stage manager that's running that. And, and um, you know, they've got their stage manager's book, you know, and it's still, you know, loosely, you know, you're still doing the book and they're making all the notes and staging and numbering all the cues and, and doing all that so that, you know, everything, everybody's on the same page because you're going to run out of that stage manager's book, you know, for the most part. And so, um, you know, that's definitely one of the challenges of doing a live show, as I'm sure that you guys know. And then there's different with, you know, Project Audion has its own set, I'm sure, Larry, you know, with, with all the pre-production of let's get this straight. And, and time is always a problem. You know, a lot of times in a theater, you, you might have to space for a week. You know, you run in, you load in, you do it, you set up, you know, you do the shows, you load out. And then it's just, um, you know, so I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad you brought that up because there's there's certainly some challenges that we'll get into. And Larry, with with you and, and uh, you know, your project audience stuff, which I just love the concept. I said it so much is uh, can you tell us how I know that all came about. Maybe the pandemic is. Did I read that right? And yeah. If you, if you watch Larry's shows. You know, he does these great introductions that, that just I love, you know, and uh, there's one where you're walking through the old theater talking about, all, you know, like that. And then mm -hmm. you get it. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. <clears throat> well, like like everybody here or, or several like Michael and Elle, uh, I certainly love doing it all live in front of a live audience. That's 39 years of the 40. I've been doing old radio. That's what I did. <clears throat> and and like like all of us here, I started from ground zero going well i don't know how we do it let's just let's just try it and see if the audience likes it uh the very first show i did and it was to open up was as part of the entertainment for opening up a major mall in north dallas and we way overdid what we we were in the food court and we way <laughs> overdid what we thought we could do because we didn't know any better we had a three hours of of shows to do on that saturday live with people walking around the food court and one of them was broadcast on one of the local radio stations i didn't know i could do it and i i'm sure if i had the tape i would cringe because uh, i'm sure it sounded horrible uh but i love it and and the and the audience still loved it and yes when you're doing it live my god the sound effects person is the one everybody looks at otherwise you've just got actors standing there reading scripts 90% of the time, unless you're doing something like uh, KCAL out of Kentucky, where they're semi-staging what they yeah. do as well. And that that gets, you know, we've all had the thing where we see the audience members closing their eyes because they're listening to the show yes. instead of watching. Uh, so <laughs> the sound effects person is the, the person who uh, is the one who's interesting to watch. And of course, most of it was done live if it wasn't done on off of old major 78 rpm records or something you know <clears throat> i just wish we could get a hammond b3 organ to cart around oh but, that would be oh boy yeah had one of those once at the museum anyway um when project audience came around it, it evolved quickly um because i wasn't sure 
all I knew is we wanted to keep going because everybody was enjoying it. And I first thought, okay, can we get everybody in the studio and just broadcast it? And then about two days later, it was, no, you can't get out of your house. Mm -hmm. So it was like, okay, can we have a conference and broadcast it live to everybody? And then it was looking around to see what would you use to do that? Um, and the, you know, I looked at a couple different things before settling on Zoom. There was a product called Jitsi, which is out there and it's free. Uh, and it was not bad, but Zoom suddenly seemed to have more, even though it cost a little bit for one person, Zoom seemed to have more capabilities than anybody else. And uh, I, and then it, and along the way, I realized it didn't need to have everybody in the same room. It would be more interesting and in fact would become a deal if we had people around the country, you know, because thanks to generic radio, I'd talk to people, I'd emailed people around the around the country who submitted scripts or had questions. And I wrote to them and said, would you like to do this? And sure enough, uh, Pete and, and Doug and, and Jack and people wrote back and said, yeah, that'd be fun. So it was a case of just getting together in a Zoom meeting and trying to work this out. Um, and I think we pretty well quickly discovered, especially uh, way back a year and a half ago, uh, that it was difficult to do it live uh, on Facebook or on um, on YouTube. You could pipe the output of Zoom into something that could be piped into Zoom, Facebook, and but it was really going to be a stretch to get it to work. And so at that point, we said, okay, we'll record it live. We'll just transcribe it like they used to say, transcribed from Hollywood, yeah, yeah. which is the same thing. Uh, we and so we do the show in a full half hour, uh, and we do it live uh, together. And uh, most shows, as many as possible, as many sound effects as possible, are live, and we give them their own window. Uh, just mm -hmm. everybody's in their own window, and that includes the sound effects guy. If you see saw the Jack Benny last time, I was sitting there right underneath. I did see it? Yeah, yeah right underneath him. Yeah. Um, and then we discovered that it was an interesting new approach because rather than just looking at five people in five windows on a black background, well, we should at least put a background behind them. Right. And, and that led to an in interesting approach to post-production, which is, excuse me, um, that we could fade people in and out a little bit or, or turn them into black and white so it looked more like a retro presentation. Uh, you know, and we've been kind of exploring what makes sense to get away with and, and to, to evolve, never losing sight of the fact that we're still all doing this together at once. We're not recording in isolation uh, or, any, you know, recording our parts in isolation. And I'm not trying to make the video more than the audio. You should be able to hear the show with your eyes closed and not miss anything. But if you look up, I want to at least make it worth your looking at. Well, you do, you do, and I've watched a bunch, and and uh, you know, you do add some flavor so that, like, when you did uh, the western there, uh, you know, people were wearing cowboy hats, <laughs> yeah, right, and, and like that, and so there was there was a flavor, and there was another one I watched where you you put in some backgrounds. I can't remember which one it was, but there was there was. There was some really interesting, like old time backgrounds and stuff in, in there, and and um, and I liked, you know, when I remember when you did the horror one with Angela Angela Young, 
you know, and she's, she's sitting there like this, you know, driving the car and, you know, little things like that, that kind of add just a little, a little flavor to it. And I love the fading in and out, you know, mm -hmm. so that you don't understand it. So, so if we were here and Bob's, you know, got a part, he's in and everybody else is kind of faded out and then it's slowly and Bob's and, and Larry's like a mad scientist back there, you know, okay, you know, given the hand signals, it's great. It's fabulous. It's, I think it's yep. fabulous. We, we, uh, we, we have fun doing it that way. And I've seen some other people do Zooms that don't do that. And, and it feels like they're missing an opportunity. And I don't know. I, it's one of the things that I enjoy doing to, to make these shows go in a different direction. And sometimes people barely notice what I've done. You know, we did a, a, an X minus one where uh, I'm playing an old guy who's going to the moon, who wanted to go to the moon since childhood. And uh, we played with the backgrounds on that so that the moon is always in or some strange round object moon sized is always in the background of every scene in the same position and if you go back and watch it from the very opening of the word the o in the on-air light to the uh moon that closes as i'm dying left on the moon it's always a circle right about there you know in the in the background of the screen it's right. as I say, right. something, something, to, something for them to look at. And if we're going to use this kind of medium, if we can't do it live together on stage, uh, and and we want the audience to watch it, our audience is Facebook and YouTube people. Then let's give them something to look at. I'd like to jump yeah, in here a second. Just go ahead, Ellie. Go ahead. Uh, uh, first, I'll uh, cite one of those um, uh, not necessarily verified quotes, but there's a story about. Um, back when televisions were starting to get more prominent in everyone's homes, an interviewer asked a little boy, what do you like better, TV or radio? And his response was, <laughs> I like radio better, the pictures are better. So <laughs> I like a great way that yeah. you're kind of pulling uh, that into what y'all are doing. Uh, and I agree that the, the story has to work with everyone's eyes closed. But one of the reasons why this discipline has really taken off in uh, the past like decade or two, again, regardless of whether or not folks remember it from the original uh, era, is that we have uh, a much more unified understanding as a culture of story mechanics. We have a lot of canonized narrative at this point that we all grew up with together. And the more familiar uh, the audience is with the what of a story, the more compelling and innovative the storytellers get to be with the how that story is told. And so it's really cool to hear that y'all are playing with these different elements of Zoom uh, that still incorporate um, the live and risky quality of uh, doing a story together in a theatrical kind of way. It's fabulous. And, and I just to add, and I'll get to you guys. Um, I had retired from the university uh, before the pandemic hit. And so when the pandemic hit, most of the theaters closed down as we all know. And uh, I was interested to see that there's, I live in Massachusetts on Cape Cod and uh, in Providence is Trinity Repertory Company, which is world famous um, acting rep, one of the last rep, real rep companies around. And they did, they always did a Christmas carol every year as a big fundraiser that they did. And they would do like 50 performances of it, you know, and they did it on, they did it on Zoom and everybody was in their own house. And they just were, and they just kept going back and forth. And it was, I was like, you know, this is brilliant. And then, you know, a lot of people have done that kind of thing. So 
it's kind of like, you know, the mother of invention thing, you know, what are, mm -hmm. what are limitations? And I always feel like limitations make us more creative, right? So shows I've done that have had like zero budget, right? Where we've had to make things out of nothing are, are I think a lot more creative. So, but this isn't about me. I, I want to talk about one of the things that, that uh, Jack put in here was, and I just took over, so I'm just catching up here, was the benefits and challenges of doing it the way that um, we do it. So, so um, when we talk about a, a live, so we have live, we have satellite. I do a lot of satellite stuff that I can talk about. Um, but what are some of the, the benefits, Bob, of the way that you guys do it that you see for somebody who's out there going, I really want to do this audio drama thing, but how do I do it? What, what do I do? What are some of the benefits you see in the way that you guys do it at Spoken Signals? Yeah. Um, so I think obviously each of these has benefits and drawbacks, right? right. I might make an analogy to music. So you go and see a band in person and there is energy and the crowd is there. You've got the reaction. Everyone's excited. Right. You can watch them play, watch how technically cool, good they are. Um, but it, you know, it has that live sound. And if you record it, it has that live sound. Right. If you're, if the band is working in the studio, you read stories of bands who will spend 10 hours trying to get the mic placed just right to get the exact kind of sound they want. And they can really tweak, they can really polish and put all that stuff together. So it's neither is better or worse. They're just different ways of experiencing the same, uh, song. Right. So I spent, you know, the, the 10 years I worked with Chatterbox, I would say was somewhere in between. We did do live stage shows. We did do some live broadcast shows, um, with their own kind of really fun challenges, but there we were doing, uh, mostly in the studio, but an old time radio production style where we try to have the effects, you know, live. We'd have the actors run around, um, try to do it all in, in one tape. We would rehearse, we would rehearse, we would rehearse, and then we would record top to bottom twice and then edit together as necessary. And that was, for me, that was really fun. It was fun for the actors. You know, it was really fun for the actors because um, we didn't have an Ellie. We would have, we would just assign actors sound effects, right? And then they would have to learn how to do the footsteps and do the, all of, you know, I, kind of I stuff. teach them, Bob. I want to make sure that, make that painfully clear. Oh, okay. So you teach the actors to do that stuff? Yes. Uh, in the event that they're being deputized for something, I walk them through yeah. it. And that is a big part of the rehearsal component, which is also one of the reasons why time and personnel are two of the big, like, ambiguous resources in any uh, production process. The less you have, the less likely it is that you're going to be able to do something uh, more ambitious, like uh, teach someone that isn't familiar with the, the discipline already. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. Thank so we would then do that kind of, that kind of production style. And great fun and you know sounded great but now with spoken signal i have a smaller space um and you know scheduling has become more complicated i think so i'm i am now enjoying getting more into the the more detailed style and the more you know we're i, I still try to record sound effects in the room as much as possible um but it will now be i'll edit the dial i'll do a dialogue cut and then go behind it and we'll do you know silverware of everyone eating and we can pan them in the in the right places in the stereo field. Um, so I'm, I am enjoying now, you know, I think in Chatterbox, I sort of avoided that because I didn't want to spend all day kind of tweaking this sound from here to here and 
putting everything just just so. Um, but after 10 years of, of doing it more live, I'm enjoying getting into that sort of really, really detailed, polished tweaking kind of thing and seeing just seeing how good I can make it sound. So is yours is, is your end your end product then is is a pure podcast correct okay that's correct never yeah. never a live performance uh, so far you know the ones we've done right great uh, michael how about you uh, what are some benefits and challenges of the way that you do it um i would say that um when we do it before a live audience one of the yep. benefits is the energy you get from the audience when you're performing um, every actor loves that yeah. feedback that immediately gives you the energy and you can carry, you know, you can carry it on. And even though, you know, we may have rehearsed the script, you know, several times, when you get in front of an audience, it's a, it's a whole nother animal. Um, some of the challenges fall into the sound effects area. Um, I wrote a script one time where, um, you know, there was a lot of traffic, there was a, a bus you know, you can't bring the bus onto the stage. There just isn't enough room. So you're going to have to, you know, um, and there's not really a whole lot of sound effects that sound like a bus. So we have some pre-recorded sound effects for some of those really elaborate things. Uh, we have a table of sound effects that um, we have actors kind of running back and forth from, you know, ringing the doorbell to talking as a character on the script and then going back and rattling some paper for fire or whatever. Um, and then at times we've actually gotten the audience in on it where we had a scene where it was raining mm. And the audience yeah, would snap their fingers and the and it really yep. sounded great. I was like, <laughs> wow, that really worked. And they had a lot of fun and we had a lot of fun and there was a lot of energy. But the biggest challenge is is actually the uh, the, the the sound effects and the technical side of it. Because every time we go to a different venue, there's always there's always new challenges. The acoustics isn't quite the same and so forth. Well, I, I, they bring up something and I saw Ellie smile and go like this when they talked about the rain, the audience, right? Um, yeah, because the there's there's more and more in theater in the last 10 or 20 years of getting the audience more involved in things like that. Right. Um, so you have, you know, um, the show and it just went out of my head um, where they, they he walked around and, and everybody had a slip of paper and then he would call out, no, you know. 10 reasons to be great, 100 reasons to be grateful or whatever it was. And he would say 99 and you'd yell out vanilla ice cream. Do you know what I mean? And things like that. And so when you did that, just for people who were saying, that's a great idea. Did you have like a stage manager come out and go, okay, this is what we're going to do. And when we do this. Well, we we obviously then... had to prep them. Yeah. Um, yeah. We had the uh, director come out and say, okay, here's what we're going to do now during this particular scene. Um, and she kind of introduced herself as their uh, conductor. Um, okay. I will have you do this. And then you, you know, people in the back row do this and then the next people and so forth and so forth. And then we're going to have the back people start slapping their thighs and, you know, and it yeah. really came out re and they had a ball. Yeah. It's like walking out with the boo hiss sign, right? You exactly. know, all, yeah. Yeah. You know, like, like, where we had like stuff, more tailored you know, like, signage to help yeah. guide the audience along and things like right. that. So, as yeah. their so instructions got applause, more yeah. you know, right. somebody, and I, I think, you know, the audience, if I was, in that show and I was sitting there, I would think that was so much fun, you know, slapping my, you know, and hit boo and hissing. And, and so if you can make it, you know, we're all, you know, it's all, it's all semiotics when you're on stage, right? It's all, it's all signal system, you know? And so you're, you're just kind of uh, making that, uh, you know, so pronounced and like, this is my signal to you, you know, 
Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it's I think it's a wonderful idea. Boy, that that gets me excited to do a so, live show now. And it's a great that. element for like for ensuring complicity with the audience because one of the things that we all recognize and celebrate on a live show is the audience wants the story to work. And mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah. Oh, they're even with you. more yeah. pronounced oh, uh, emotional yeah. investment in that if they're also part of the story. Exactly. exactly. We once did. We once did a Doctor Who at the library at a library, oh, and fun. and engaged and selected as before the show as the show started a couple audience members to be Daleks. Um, we we I had we, we yeah. had set up a mic uh, that fed into a laptop to get the Dalek uh, ring modulation sound. And yeah. so anything they said would have worked fine. They didn't have to oh. inflect or anything, you know, anything. So, but that was a nice way to get them involved. We picked a couple of them and, and made them come up and say a few things and then held them back and then came, just came up and became background Daleks. And that was successful. Oh. I think you were mentioning a big fundraiser of a Christmas Carol recently. Yeah. Uh, I see a lot of radio theater live shows done in a fundraiser format. And one mm-hmm. of the more popular things that folks can do is if there's any sort of silent auction component, they may auction yes. off a walk-on roll for an audience mm-hmm. number. Oh, that's a great idea. Performance. Yeah. That's a great idea. And Larry, if you ever need Doctor Who again, just, you know, call me up and I'll fly out. And so, because if, <laughs> if I can get on there and I can go exterminate, you know, I'll be like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I can retire. It, it, it might happen this fall. Uh, okay. Texas Radio Theater <laughs> often does one with us. So. Yeah. Great. Um, Michael, was there anything else in terms of uh, challenges when you do it on, on stage live? Well, one of the big things, the biggest challenge that we had um, is miking the audience um, because we do a comedy and sitcoms are known for their, you know, laughter. Right. So hopefully mm-hmm. if it's funny, right. Um, and it's always been very challenging to try to get the mics right so that we can actually get the audience's response to that. And I've listened to some of our shows and the audience sounds very far away. They, you know, you know, one or two people laughing, it just, you know, it just kind of was kind of weak. Yeah. And we actually shot ourselves in the foot once because we were doing the Christmas episode and the Christmas episode was inundated with all sorts of Christmas references to movies and songs and, yeah. and stories and stuff. And we had a contest while we were doing the show. We told the audience, okay, if you can identify as many of these as you can, then we have a Christmas sock full of Easter eggs that you can, you know, that, that you will win. Right. So we did the show and nobody was laughing. I thought, what, what is wrong? They're not getting the jokes. What? They were busy writing. They were trying to get the numbers down. And so we kind of got ourselves in the foot with that one. So you got to be very careful how you, uh, how you treat your audience. But the biggest challenges have been, yeah, that sort of thing. Thank you, Larry. How about you? What are some benefits and challenges either live or Project Audion or whatever you want to share with our audience? Um, well, of course, doing it with Zoom, the biggest technical challenge, uh, a couple, uh, the biggest challenges there are, are some interesting technical challenges. You have, if you do it live, you have one issue with audio of making it sound good and, and dampening down the room echo and keeping the feedback from happening and making sure the sound effects mic is actually loud enough, uh, <laughs> so that you can hear the things. Uh, in Zoom, the pro, the first problem we learned was that, uh, everybody had their own, set up and there was massive amounts of disconnect in the audio quality from uh, person to person, Uh, especially in the early days when we were all just getting on Zoom for the first, many of us were getting on Zoom for the first time. 
there's people who were talking into their laptops. There's there's people who were just doing the whole show like this. Um, <laughs> and so we had a lot of disparate audience, uh, audio quality. Now, that's one of the things I've learned first on and that changed the shape of it a little bit is Zoom has the ability to record separate audio tracks. <clears throat> Not necessarily something most people know, but you can end up with uh, 10 actors and 10 tracks. And that was a lifesaver. Uh, I could, I, I, I would then start with the worst audio track I had, whoever sounded worst, uh, take that into Audacity, do a little bit of cleaning and noise reduction, and then I'd take the every other track that got better and, and reduce it down. You know, I'd, I'd filter it, I'd uh, try to EQ it a little bit, you know, anything to make it sound as bad as the worst track. And since we're doing, uh, and since we're doing old radio, this is one of the excuses I have is, you know, it can sound bad. I can roll it off at 8K. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't need full fidelity. I don't need stereo. Um, so I got lucky in that regard. So the sound now, I've fortunately, a lot of people have gone on to improve their sounds, you know, uh, and there's a lot of cheap improvements. Where is that thing? Yeah. I mean, I love this, this microphone from Monoprice. Uh, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a $29 USB mic and it's brilliant, you know, and really? yeah, Monoprice does a great job on stuff. And, and it's one of the, you see a lot of similar ones online, but this one particularly has gotten nice reviews. It's a, it's a big, it's a big old, uh, cardioid with a big element and mm -hmm. um you know it, it it meant that people were willing to and that was a ni nice thing many of our people have gone oh yeah I'll, I'll spend 29 bucks and so next show they show up with a much better soundtrack larry i bet people would love if you could put a link for that yeah. in, the, in the chat yeah yeah it's just it's monoprice.com which is one of my favorite places to go for uh sound and electronics and uh, anything like that oops that went to let me send that to the wrong right people not just that not just one there okay um so that kind of thing you know the the technical challenges of everybody being in their own place uh <laughs> was uh, was a challenge and in our case also getting people together because across the country um you know that's that's a challenge to find people's common schedules we're mm -hmm. doing a sherlock holmes in fact as soon as they get off this we're starting our first oh. rehearsal on that and that's fine except i'm actually using a couple people in england uh, for this show and it's going to be eight o'clock there and so we can't do our weeknight rehearsals with them because it's right. two in the morning there so just challenge, just coordinating schedules from uh, across the country has been interesting. <laughs> I feel your pain on that one. I am yeah. uh, making a debut at the Edinburgh Fringe online in August, but the rest of the team is in uh, England, which means that uh, the rehearsals are 8 p.m. for them and I'm two in the afternoon for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. for, yeah. For any yeah. rehearsals. Yeah. But none of us are doing, place. none of us are recording these shows or doing our shows separately you know and and i think that's interesting because we, we you know there's a lot of people who are recording these shows in isolation you know uh i know uh pete ha pete does this this way you know he sent me a show that he just recently did and he just said record all your lines <laughs> and send them I, in and i don't mean to throw shade at that choice but i really do think that you can hear the difference when all of the actors are legitimately recording at the same time and listening to each other and, and feeding off of each other uh, and to 
uh, piggyback on the Zoom conversation because it was it was real tough at the beginning of the uh, the pandemic when we were trying to figure out how to use it for artistic purposes because it is ultimately conference software and mm -hmm. there are still mm -hmm. a lot of ways where like it, it tamps down sound or robs you of nuance and so ironically we're using this hyper futuristic technology that is kind of reducing a lot of our sound quality back to what it was in the original days of old timey radio and to give credit yeah recorded sounds like uh like the Mogambe falls if you wanted to if you wanted to go full rob mod on that but um one of the things that i've liked for productions where we are recording together but not performing it live like that it's for a, a later uh release to an audience is having all of the actors on their own um audacity sessions that mm -hmm. they can then upload for the sound right. engineer to that's... edit together because that's going to give you better quality still than zoom is going to give you on oh yeah tracks. so yeah so one of the things in, in talking about that la that that we've done because we still um i still do a lot of just satellite recording um just because of a lot of things of getting together with people and, and it's it's so so it, it's a lot easier but one of the things that we've done like i had mentioned in the last uh video that we're doing um Lothar, Jack, and I, and Tanya Milovich, and some other people, uh, we're doing a 20-part series of um, Temple of Vampires from I Love a Mystery. Oh. And, yeah. And, um, and what we do with that is we connect up, we connect up on Skype, and then we talk on Skype, and then we all record on our own units, oh. but we do it, we do it together. Mm -hmm. This is something that Jack introduced because that's how we do Sonic Echo. Nice. Um, so, so that we're all mm -hmm. together, we're playing off of each other, but we're recording on our own system. So when they send it to me, because I'm directing and mixing it, when they send it to me, I've got separate tracks for everybody, um, but we've done it together. So we're able, like you said, and uh, you know, we we're able to act off of each other. We're able to pick up, you know, as much as you can when you're not in the same room. But still, you know, you can, you're still, there are nuances there because now we're acting together. Now, some of the actors, because if you know Temple of Empires, it's really about the, the four people and then there's one um, child actor. But there's other people too that, that are in just a few and they've recorded it satellite and they've sent that in. So I'm going to have to mix that all together. Mm -hmm. but, but that's another way to do it um, as well. So there's, there's so, it's so many ways to do it um and uh, you know for somebody who's breaking in it says i want to do some audio drama there's just a million ways to do it and it's just the way that that you feel like is the way that's going to work for you in that in that moment um of where you are and again we've we've all said it i think at one point in this conference that you know don't wait till you think you're ready just go do it mm -hmm. right I mean, it's it's like anything first time i directed a show if I waited till I felt like I was ready, I may never have directed the show. So, you know, I just jumped in with both feet and I, and I made all kinds of mistakes and, and that, that's how you learn. So I will give props to Zoom for uh, for having improved the product over the last 18 months. Uh, you know, they've made a bunch of changes and improvements. And I mean, uh, the day I discovered the setting for original sound, I think oh, yeah. I was running around the house, you know, well, going, Oh, that's well, and this is to a question that somebody's asking in the chat. Yeah, we're going to um, get to those just a minute. Uh, and, ahead, and, so we can we can squeeze this in anyway. But, 
um, there is Zoom has a ton of audio settings, and and generally you have to have one account paid to some unlock some of these sometimes. Um, but there is a setting for original sound, and it's it's changed names a couple times. But basically, it fixes most of the dropout problem when multiple people oh. are speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's designed to be the anti-conference sound version uh, and let everybody talk over each other at once. Uh, and instead of what Zoom does like it's doing now, which is gating, I mean, we heard Ellie, you know, start speaking while somebody else was and you couldn't hear her. That's what it tries to do. With a, if, if everybody's original sound is turned on, it won't do that. Now the flip side is you have to wear headphones <laughs> because the because otherwise it's feeding back into the mic all the time and you get these weird echo effects. So, but Zoom, to their credit, has improved that. They've added some hi-fi and some other settings that are nice. Uh, so, uh, look, they're buried in there. <laughs> so, thank you for that. So, we've got some questions. Let's get some questions. We have a question. Is it, is it Dane um, Larenson? What method of production would be the most cost and time effective in creating audio drama? Remote recording, group recording or a live show? All of those are gonna depend very heavily on how much you're valuing other people's time. Mm-hmm. Because people are being paid for uh, an hourly rate of any kind for the work they're putting in. It's going to be dictated by how much experience they have and how much uh, pre-production you're doing in advance of uh, getting something in the can. Okay, great. Anybody else, Bob, did you have something on that? I thought I saw you shaking your head. Yeah, I mean, similar. I think it kind of depends on what you have available, right? So, you know, if you've got, if someone you know has a nice microphone and you can borrow that, then that may make that easier. If someone you know has a performance space and and is willing to let you have it at a discount, that might make that easier too. So um, I think it's interesting. I do think this stuff is mostly uh, determined by availability. It's, it's, you know, determined by preference, which is kind of what we've been talking about today. But uh, there's some level at which I think maybe this, the story and the script dictates the setting, right? Because we talked a bit yesterday, like, you know, you can do a, say a horror show, a horror performance with an audience, but you're not looking for laughter. You're not looking for audible response. So that there's a bit of a different, like, I think, even if it's the the tertiary consideration, I think the type of show that you're doing or the script that you're trying to perform may also point you in a certain direction. Yeah, and I, I think you talk about live. I know there was an issue, and Ellie may know about this, that uh, there was a lot of articles written on it a few years ago about people laughing in theater at moments when they shouldn't be laughing. Like, And what people talked about was like some people laugh when they feel uncomfortable, oh, right? Yeah. So, so, so when you're on, when actors are on stage, and they, you know, if if you're in the wings, yeah, on a stage, and uh, you know somebody comes off and they're going, why were they laughing at that? You know, what what did I do? What it's and it, these psychologists came on and they wrote these these papers on it and saying that, you know, some people feel uncomfortable like in an uncomfortable moment in a play and they'll laugh, and it, you know, and so that was a that was a big deal. So. You never know when you never know when you know you have a live audience what's going to happen. One hundred percent. And I will. Yeah. There are a couple of things to uh, mention here. One, I was a member of a horror theater company for mm-hmm. nine years, 
And we always made sure that we explained to our, a cast of a new production uh, well before they got into previews with an audience that depending on the audience's relationship to horror, people may laugh if they're uncomfortable. People may laugh because they think something is awesome because that's mm -hmm. some of the, uh, that's the spectrum of horror theater attendees that we were dealing with. Some people were diehard seeing everything Rob Zombie puts out kind of, yes, yeah. <laughs> and then other people would be like shocked, but not know how to handle that in a group setting. And so I'd also say that just because something is fun doesn't necessarily mean that it's funny either. And so I want to strongly right. preclude anyone that is shying away from the idea of doing horror live for those reasons, because uh, it is, I think we have a social responsibility and a cultural responsibility to expose ourselves to things that make us frightened or uncomfortable in a group setting, because that allows us to uh, deconstruct why they have power over us. Anytime oh. you explain why a joke is funny, it's not funny anymore. Anytime you do the same thing with what frightens you, you get a little mm -hmm. bit braver. Oh, what a great point. <laughs> um, anything else on, on cause Dane's question was about cost and time effective. Um, any, any thoughts on that? I well, I think I, th I think live shows are clearly the most tricky in the sense of time. Uh, but right. if you want, but if your audience, if your goal is to present before a live audience, that's your goal. That's completely right. different than putting it online. Uh, you know, uh, other than that, recording, you know, and that in our case, audience case, remote recording was the only answer because we wanted to involve people from coast to coast. There was right. no way we were going to get together in a group, although we. We keep hoping we'll have a party in in a year or so, <laughs> somewhere in the somewhere in Kansas, I think, where we're in the middle of the country, equally distant. You know, I think that that we we talked yesterday about team building and right. We had it and, and it's it's come up. And one thing that um, when um, I was in a great series, the Table Round, it was King Arthur and and that and and what he would do is the gentleman who, who did it, I, his name, I just blanked on his name because I'm old, but um, he would have these like get together on like Google Hangouts at the time. And he would have like Christmas time and people would get, because there was no Zoom and anything like that. You know, and, but people would get a chance to just get together and just talk and like laugh and, and have a good time together um, like that. So I think anything you can do with a cast like that, especially now, you know, COVID time, uh, even though we're starting to come out of it a bit, um, it's it's good to to just have those times, you know. Because I remember we were doing a live show. It was if you know the show, the Women of Lockerbie. It was it was this wonderful oh. show. Mm. It was yeah. about the Lockerbie um, uh, crash, the terrorist crash in the, the plane, and it was so heavy. It was so dense. You could start to see the the actors becoming like. So the, the sound, the person who was doing sound up in the booth and it was her idea. And then I went with it. I think one day in a rehearsal, everybody was just like, oh, this is so daunting. This is so heavy. She hit um, a music and it was one of those line dance things, you know, and all of a sudden everybody on stage just jumped up and started line dancing and, uh, and doing that. And then the whole thing changed. So every once in a while, we do a rehearsal, I just go, like that and she go bonk, and it was you know and it was like move you know three <laughs> steps to the left you know it's all right and then we'd all you know and and otherwise it was it you know because 
you know, we're going to talk about acting later, but, but I, I said, you know, I always said that with acting, your mind knows that it's, it's not really happening, but your body doesn't know that. And so you start to feel stress. You start to feel anxiety. You start to feel things in your body that even though your mind knows this is, this is acting, your body doesn't know that. And so there can be, there can be, you know, health issues if, if you don't, aren't, aren't able to uh, mitigate that with exercise and what, and whatever, you know, to do that. And, and I had a woman who played lower in glass menagerie back in the eighties. I used to check in with her every night. You okay? You know, is everything, cause you know, you could see her start to get a little, um, so it becomes real. So it, there's, there's certainly some, there's something said, that's a different topic, but there's certainly some, uh, some issues there. Then another question, um, and I, I don't know, Larry, if you, Bill Chessman asked, Zoom can do separate tracks. Where can I get more info? Is there a place, Larry, where he could get more information on how to do that? I, I mean, Zoom has pretty good documentation if you Google okay. it, just generally for separate tracks and other questions. Uh, I will note that you generally, you may have to go to the Zoom website first to your account, go to account settings, okay. and turn and look through that because some of these settings aren't available until you turn them on on the website and then go back to your zoom app okay. and look for them uh but but it's it's buried audio yeah audio audio preferences audio settings i uh, david mm -hmm. i am responding to another question there too uh they're buried in there and if you look online and you go zoom separate tracks you can find some guides to where they are and how to turn them on. I'm going to jump on that uh, real quick. And just say, like there yes. are a lot of great tutorials online uh, for Zoom, like particularly on uh, on YouTube. But always make sure you're clocking the upload date of any YouTube tutorial you're looking Thank at. You. Yes, sure that it's the most. It's going to be the most relevant given how many. Because the rules have changed a couple times. Have. Yeah. This is a. Um, we talked about this in the last session, but it's worth talking about again. Bill Chessman asked. For old time scripts, Doctor Who scripts, etc., what are considerations for copyright clearance and or royalty costs? So, and what did that, and what did you say last time? I'm being curious. I said, uh, do not use copyright material, and do not use copyright music, and do not use copyright sound effects. Um, and there's there's lots of places out there that you can get um, music that is free and clear use like Incompetech and even I mentioned the singer Moby has, has a whole site yeah. where you can use his music. All you got to do is fill out a form and tell him what you're using it for. And as long as you're not making money off of it. Um, and, and if you're using a copyright script now, we, I've done a lot of reimaginings of like you like X minus one and, you know, from the fifties. And so I feel relatively safe doing that, but there's some, you know, there's some people who are doing fan fiction or, or they're doing they're just doing something that's copyrighted. And the thing about copyright law is that it's 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 civil law so that the person who owns the copyright would have to take action against you, um, meaning a lot of times it's a cease and desist order. And as long as you take it down, but sometimes it can be more than that. Lofar talked about one company where they had to. Um, pay a lot of money because they had used over a period of years a lot of copyrighted stuff so my well, my thing was that that my feeling is that you're kind of okay with old-time radio stuff 
depending on what it is, you know what I mean? But, but in terms of taking something like a movie or like, you know, you're going to do star Wars or something like that. You're, you're not, you know, Disney's the most litigious place on the planet. You know, you're going to be important. So that's my feeling. The copyright question is the one I get more than any other on no. generic radio. And I didn't used to, to be honest. It used to be, how do I do sound effects? Uh, what, for the first 10 years of the site, it was that kind of question. Well, how do I do this? How do I make that sound? And, but, and then about 10 years ago or so, it started shifting. And now every, at least once a week, almost, it seems like somebody says, well, this is, is this copyright? Am I going to be safe? Um, and you're right. I mean, the laws as written now is basically everything since 1923 is, is right. under copyright. On the other hand, 90% of the old time radio is so obscure and the actual copyright owner is so unlikely to be locatable. You know, I had two teachers over the over the Christmas holidays uh, try to find somebody who knew if a suspense episode was copyrighted. Now that was a CBS show and they went to CBS and tried independently to uh, find out if they could do this for their high school class. And in one case, the guy, basically, they never got an answer. It just became a dead end. Somebody else found somebody in a licensing department who said, well, we'll let you do it once, but don't tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, 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 well, but that's a fair answer. To, uh, that's a yeah. reasonable answer. We need orphan works. Um, but in lieu, you know, if we're doing stuff that nobody's getting paid, nobody's making money, nobody's running commercials, the audience is measured in hundreds, if we're lucky, um, you know, and it's heard once, especially live performances. You know, if you're doing a live benefit at a library, are we harming anybody? The bigger question is, can, can a SAG after actor show up without hurting anybody? Uh, I gotta go disagree because yeah, go when it comes to, uh, is anyone going to find out if that's the biggest question, uh, underlying an ethical issue, the fact of the matter is, you know, personally, whether or not you're doing something that is not necessarily a hundred percent above board. Um, you can do all of your due diligence, document that due diligence, uh, if you've got access to an IP attorney, it's better to front load and uh, maybe even just treat them to coffee if they will talk you through some things. If you're in a position to have a not-for-profit uh, building a board, they're one of the most important people to have on that board if possible. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I don't think it's, the wor it's typically worth the risk ethically. And you're also not necessarily giving yourself the best opportunity when it comes to your own artistic growth. If you have friends that are writers and they know what kind of thing uh, you're jamming off of, maybe you tell them, hey, we want something that uh, has that energy. I bet every single person that is produced here has a gumshoe detective uh, fiction that they've worked on at some point who is not not Sam Spade. And yeah. that means like that means there's more fun discursive work out there that we can all be building off of and inspiring each other off of. Um, one of my favorites is Locked in a Vacancy here in Chicago has a space detective, Joe Jupiter, and he's Sam Spade in space. We all know that. We all embrace that and celebrate it, but he is his own creative work. And so we've all got something like that. And I think ultimately, you know, if uh, you know from the feeling you get in your stomach, whether or not you should be doing something. Yeah. Sure, and in twenty, go ahead. I was going to say, in twenty years, we have the generic radio website was contacted. Generic radio was contacted once 
by a lawyer from Condé Nast who said, uh, please take down the shadow scripts. Mm-hmm. And they said that politely. And I said politely, sure. <laughs> and and we did. And that was fine. That's the only one we've ever been uh, apprised of. They actually then proceeded to tell me, if you produce it live for a live audience and don't charge, you're welcome to do that. But we can't let you post the scripts. <laughs> so I don't know how people are supposed to do the shadow. But if they do it, they said that I have it from the lawyer that they could do a show if if it was for a live audience one time, not recorded and and disappeared after that. So and, and well, it was a shadow. Time, most yeah, time, that's right. It was the shadow. <laughs> yeah, I'll get you guys in a second, but most like if you read for a play script, like if somebody wants to produce a play script, oh yeah, and you read the fine print in the play script, it's going to say it doesn't matter what you charge. You know, if this is for for charity, it doesn't matter. You need to pay the royalties um, for it. And I would just add before I get to to you guys over there about IP stuff. Um, I'm a firm believer that people should be paid for their IP work. They worked hard on it. Um, and you know, we, we're lucky, well, I shouldn't say we, but Jack Ward is lucky to have someone like Sharon B who he pays to produce music for a lot of our stuff. Or there's, there's sites like Pond5 that I've used and other things like that where you can purchase, it's not that expensive. You can purchase the rights to use certain music or like that. So, so, um, so yeah, so it's it's a it's a thorny question, but go ahead. Uh, let's go to let's go to Bob if you have thoughts on that copyright stuff. Not a lot to add. We we with Chatterbox when we were doing adaptations, we would tend to stick to pre nineteen twenty three stuff just to yes. stay clear of copyright, you know, and and fix that. So I understand the you know the urge to do copyrighted material, fan fiction especially. People love those stories, but. I think Jeff, I think you summed it up well. It's really the the uh, prerogative of the copyright holder, and yes. you know, and so yeah, there I think there is a misperception that well, if you're not charging, you're not going to get in trouble, but that's not, not true. true. Um, but you know, Larry, as you said, there's also works that are effectively abandoned that would you know, well, is it is it better for an old time radio script to just fall into obscurity, or is it better if somebody reproduces it? and gets some new ears on it and gets people interested in it, even if they don't have the, the copyright. Uh, you know, you could you could argue either of those, I think. But how do I Beatles cover terrible. bands? How do Beatles cover bands do it? Because we're the Beatles yeah. cover band of, of, of yeah. audio drama. Yeah, you know. there you go. There you yeah. Go. Well, I think I think with fan fiction, you know, if there's a company that has an IP and they've got tons of people doing fan fiction, they might say, that's a good thing because it's it's raising the awareness of what we're doing. So if I have, we have all these people and they may go, let's let them do fan fiction. But you may have another company that's going, I don't want anyone doing fan fiction on this. And that, so that's their prerogative. Like we said, you know, it's, it's whoever holds the copyright is their prerogative to say cease and desist or, okay, go ahead and do it. You know, and, and uh, like that. Uh, Michael, how about you? Thoughts on that? Um, we've come into a couple of uh, issues with, uh, with the title. Um, and it's like, oh, um, can you hold a title? Can you have duplicate titles for, for different stories? Or th- I mean, the same title for, du- you know, for different stories. And uh-huh. that's been a question that's been bantered about. Um, I know that, um, trademark is basically would be the title. 
So if you have the, the trademark rights to a particular title, then you can use the title and put whatever story you want underneath it and you own the title. But if somebody else is using that same title for a completely different story and it's appropriate, um, you know, is there going to be a legal battle back and forth or, you know, how, how are you going to handle that sort of thing? You know, because the story isn't the title. The title is just the title of the story. So, but yet it's the trademark of the story. So, you know, there's a big entanglement with that. And well, I, I'm, I'm sad to say I haven't come to a resolution as to how that particular works. We have a few things in the in the. Nobody uh, has. I've talked to a lawyer, and we've been working on on certain elements um, about this. But it's like, I really don't know. I, that's an interesting question because I just watched on Netflix they have a series of the movies that made us or something like that, and mm -hmm. I watched the Ghostbusters one, and they couldn't use Ghostbusters because of the, the right. cartoon that, it, you know, the show that had come out with Larry Storch and like that mm -hmm. back in Saturday morning cartoon and they couldn't use Ghostbusters. So they were filming each, whenever they said Ghostbusters, they were filming, doing two sets of films, one with Ghostbusters and one with Ghost Breakers because that was the real title. And then they couldn't get clearance. They would, Universal would not give them clearance. But at one, one point they said, we can't keep doing this. So they just went with Ghostbusters the whole time. And Universal was not giving them clearance. But in the meantime, the guy who was running the studio, Columbia or somebody who got fired from Columbia and got hired at Universal as the, <laughs> and, he gave, and he gave them clearance. So he got, he, uh, I'll give you clearance. I, I have control over that. And that's how they got clearance. But they, otherwise they weren't getting clearance for that Ghostbusters title. Um, mm. It's an interesting thing to watch. It's really interesting, um, you know, Especially because how the original three Ghostbusters were Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy, and John Belushi. That how many movies have you seen that have the same title, but they're different? And they get, how did they yeah. do that? How did I don't they know. that off? Yeah, I don't know. All that legal stuff kind of just I, I miss I miss the early days in 1988. I, I did War of the Worlds. And uh, it, life was a lot simpler back then. It was. Uh, I was. That was the one radio show that still everybody knows and we wanted to do it for the 50th you know um and i found howard koch in the phone book in new york Did the writer <laughs> he was still alive he was gonna die another year or two later but bloody heck i just i called him and i said i'm work i'm in dallas and i got yeah. i'm working with this museum we want to do it as a benefit and he said just send me a letter that's cool and go do it <laughs> and and he said more power because i think at that point you know it was still kind of novel that anybody wanted to recreate any of that stuff and it was really easy and of course now then it went to he died and um his uh estate uh, you know you check with his lawyer and his estate and he'll grant you permission and now it's on play scripts and there's a pricing range and everything else and uh as I say, I miss the miss miss when it was easy, and I wish I'd recorded that conversation with with him. <laughs> yeah, well, you could do things like that. It doesn't really happen too much anymore. No, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, I I've done that kind of thing too. And, you know, so you know, I had a friend who who did the Hobbit for the stage, and he contacted the Tolkien Society, and they were like, "Yeah, send us a script," and they went, "Yeah, okay, do it." You know, and and uh, but that wouldn't happen today. You know, um, no, I think Disney owns that now, and anything with Disney is to be know. steered as far away from as possible. Oh, yeah, they'll, they'll get, <laughs> they'll get you like that. That, that's for sure. Um, so one of the, I don't think we have any more questions, but um, 
I'll double check that. But one of the things that Jack had written here are one of, when you do your recordings, what are the expectations from all parties involved? Like what are your expectations of, of actors or sound people or directors or however you set up your thing? Bob, do you have a, can you start us with that? Sure, Jeff, uh, when you're talking about expectations, do you mean within what what kind of scope within you your production just uh, like how do you divide things up or what do you whatever you make of that I, i'm reading this i i didn't prep for this I session so I, <laughs> i'm a i'm a substitute teacher uh, I hear you. like that you know so so it's whatever you whatever you make of it. <laughs> uh yeah so i think um I guess the important thing is to just clearly define those roles, okay. right? I guess that's the important thing is to say, look, um, we're, we're using this script and if have changes to it, we want to make sure the writer is comfortable with that before we do anything. We're, you know, we're saying this person is producing, um, doing all the editing and recording. So if they tell you that you are too loud, then you are too loud, right? So I used to, uh, you know, when I was directing, I would, I would tell people like, I can stop you or is we were doing a live show and say I can stop you or the producer can stop you otherwise you cannot stop right you're performing live so you can't stop um you know we're all working with um volunteers or at least deeply deeply underpaid talent so I think you have to also then be flexible with people you know um I tended to if I if I have actors who couldn't make an important rehearsal for a legitimate reason you try to be generous with them you try to be understanding right. if you have an actor who just turns out to be flaky you muddle through and you are nice as possible and then you just don't ever work with that actor again there's there's really not much right. else to do at that point right yeah. so setting that stuff out on the front end having firm rehearsal dates anytime stuff starts changing you can't then blame people for not being able to keep up right so i think yeah i guess clarity is the one thing that comes to mind I think that's good. And I know that in different theater workshops that I've conducted and been a part of, um, one of the things that we've done is, you know, put up some, you know, paper and, you know, what are the expectations here? What are, what are the rules that we can all live with that we need to do? Cause we're doing a 12 hour workshop together. You know, what are the things? And then people will say, Hey, you know, this, and, and, you know, so we get these lists and everyone agrees upon them. You know, and then it, you set some kind of a container, whatever that is, you know, so that everybody feels comfortable in that space. And whether it's things like today, like things like, um, you know, when you introduce people, what, what are your what are your correct pronouns? Right. And and things like that of so that we can you know that you can be addressed the way that you should that you need to be addressed and things like that where you value you know, people, everybody as an individual and, and, you know, asking something like the first time I did that with a group of actors, you know, I had this woman just gasped. She goes, I can't believe you just asked that. Thank you so much. Do you know what I mean? You know what I mean? And, and I was like, okay, you know, and so things like that to honor people um, like that, but yeah, setting up some kind of a safe container is what we always called it. Uh, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make a safe container for everyone to be creative because we know that, you know, once, I probably we may have all had a director at some point that we were doing something and that director was gruff and you know oh, that's you know sucked or whatever you know I was like okay buddy you know 
you just shut down. Fine, I'm never, you know, I'm not taking a risk now. So in order to get actors and creative people to take risks, I think you need to build a safe container. But uh, Michael, how about you? Thoughts on on that, like expectations and roles or whatever, whatever comes up for you in this question. Well, actually, I think I think since we started, the expectations kind of changed once we realized what kind of a of an animal we were creating. Um, when I first did, uh, when we first did our first three sets of, of episodes, um, I was very insecure about whether or not this was going to work. I was very blessed to have a lot of talented people that I didn't really have to direct much. I mean, they just brought to it a lot of life, a lot of creativity, and it, mm-hmm. it came off very well. And as I walked away, I went, hey, I think this, I think this works. And um, I thought, I hope other people thought it worked too. And the one gal that was playing my uh, leading lady um, was standing back at the back wall there kind of by herself. I thought, oh, she doesn't know how to tell me that this was a disaster. That's it. She's, she's just going to tell me, don't you ever, ever set me up for this again. So I thought, well, I'll walk over and I'll, I'll casually, you know, say, you know, well, hi, how do you think it went? You know, give her an out so that she can tell me this. And she said, I want to direct the next one. I want to oh, nice. get in there. I'm like, yes. Okay. So as we progressed in doing, we, we found more and more how we can push things, where we can take things. And people were, were the expectations were a little bit less in the sense that they, they didn't fear as much as what was going to happen. They were ready to come out. So it's been a growing process for us. Fantastic. Larry, how about you? They did a lot of good stuff there. They said a lot of good uh, that they show up. And that they uh, and and that they uh, email me if something's going to change. <laughs> you know, if I write, please email me back. It's pretty simple. <laughs> That's good. Now, Elia, I do want to come back to something that you mentioned, and I do want to let you answer this question. But then, did you mention that you wanted to share some something with us on your screen? I don't want to let that go by because I want to. Absolutely. You want, um, I. Let's let's finish up this, okay. this question okay. and then I'll. Show I didn't want to let in. that go though. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, thank you. Thank you You're very welcome. much. Uh, but yeah, um, I love what everyone's saying. Um, the the basics uh, that are part of a larger conversation, at least that we're having in Chicago, and I hope is also translating to other cities, is that just because you're doing something for the love of it doesn't mean that uh, we should be taking that as opportunity to exploit people. Um, <laughs> We need honesty and transparency across the board. That comes from the production body, that comes from the people that are working for that production body. You mm-hmm. say what your conflicts are. You don't be afraid right. to say what you can and can't do. And then if you are part of the production, you honor the things that you said you can and can't do. Uh, the production company needs to be responsible about pro- uh, providing schedules for things and expectations that are realistic, reasonable, and respectful of mm-hmm. everyone involved. If you've got people that have uh, different positions, you make it very transparently clear what the expectations of those positions are. And if they are not being paid nearly what they're supposed to be paid, you make it as easy as possible for them to do those jobs. Yes, I agree. We also have a lot of uh, uh, work going into proper uh, reporting paths for collaborators at this point. Um, On any Mm -hmm. given group project, there'll be someone like uh, part of the ensemble, probably not part of uh, production because we wanna be cognizant of like the hierarchy of power and how that affects people's comfort uh, when they're reporting issues that they can go to and say, hey, look, I'm, con- I'm uncomfortable about uh, 
what I'm being pressured to do in X, Y, Z, or, mm-hmm. hey, this person is using language that is making me uncomfortable, right. or, hey, I need to be able to talk about uh, rehearsal restrictions in this way, but anything like that, um, so they can make sure that they're being heard and also that they're being documented so we can be having these conversations about how, how to make things better for everyone in the future. And also to jump back to what we were saying earlier about like cringing at earlier work, I remember the last time I uh, looked at a performance of mine and said, yeah, nailed it. it <laughs> Me <was> neither. <laughs> Which doesn't mean I'm not proud of a lot of the things I've done since yeah. then, but I'm also just not satisfied because I'm excited about what I'm going to do next time. Mm-hmm. And so we always need to be learning and uh, committing ourselves to uh, benefiting each other in the future, artistically, ethically, and as a community. So, I agree. Well, that's what this conference is for. Yes, it is. Is. So now yes, I'm going to for Jack. a little we... bit of paper tech information. I'm going to share my screen. Yes, please do. Yeah. And let's see. Actually, one second. I'm going to click over to the thing I wanted to start with to make sure that I've got that right. And this is uh, just basically a jumping off point for the way I uh, document a script. First thing I do when I'm working on design reading the script a bunch of times and then going through the script and itemizing the different effects that I see or hear or what I think might even be beneficial to add. Um, mm-hmm. Because we are such a new works town, I'm often getting to do a lot of uh, negotiation with the playwright and director about maybe adding in a little di- uh, different bits that help us earn the medium of live audio drama. So uh, this is just a jumping off point for what works for me. But if this is helpful to anyone that's trying to cut their teeth on uh, fully in uh, specifically in theatrical design, I hope this can be helpful. So you start with a uh, sound effect, you cite what page number it's on, line numbers as well. If you've got a playwright that's awesome enough to do lines, uh, line numbers on their scripts, because those are helpful to everybody. Uh, the prop that you think would probably be best for creating that sound, if it's a sound combination, then there might be something like climbing tree A, climbing tree B, climbing tree C, itemized in the sound effects, and then giving each prop its own uh, line on the checklist as well, because you're gonna be building this to make up a checklist for top of show. Do you have it? This is also something that's gonna get easier and easier to say yes to over time, because you're probably accruing a lot of props or access to props. If you've got friends that are also working in this discipline, or if you've got colleagues that uh, can help you with rentals of things, you know where to borrow things from or rent things from. Mm -hmm. And Uh, if it's expendable, I like that. um, You mentioned expendable. Yeah, that's good. We were talking about resources and what's expensive uh, production-wise, and that is a big factor. If you're doing a really gory, visceral show, then you're probably going to have a lot of things that you don't want to add until as far into the rehearsal process as possible, because that's going to be more heads of lettuce, more cans of soup, more blocks of styrofoam, more Mm -hmm. candies, all those things that you're going to be breaking or destroying. So we're we're getting close. I guess. If you want to put another, do you have another one? I do. Yeah. So this is a template. While while you're saying that, I there is a folder that Jack made on Google Docs of for documents to go into. Uh, So if you want to add anything into anybody wants to add anything into that folder, 
please do so that people can have something to take away. I added a beat chart in there because I, this is after my own heart right here because I was always making beat charts and things like that and from the, a lot of from the work of Marshall Mason um, like that in in that's in there and hopefully I'll get to talk about that in the next session but I'll give you the last minute here to talk about oh look at this see I love it yeah <laughs> sure so here's this like warms my heart out. Um, if you've got a creative team that's uh, Google savvy because I love me some Google Docs. I've got a section for my own notes as Foley artists and also the director's notes if they want to respond directly off of this document or even the playwriter's notes if they're still with us um, and want to be part of that conversation as well. Uh, so this is where I would say like, things that are borrowed or things that are going to be expendables. Um, and then I've got things like shorthand for some of these would be Noise party, that's my answer for, I'm not sure how to do this effect, we're gonna learn it in rehearsal, or I'm gonna do some <laughs> uh, additional deep dive when I'm producing, when I'm working on this stuff in paperwork in advance of rehearsal. So this is what my response to a script might be. And then I print that out and I have that handy while I'm actually doing the notation on the script itself. And so that's when I get crazy red ready and have lots of weird little side about what might be a good idea like theatrically a gore reveal the door has to open inward so we can be falling onto a bunch of bodies it's a long story um, <laughs> so just like little crazy notes like this that I can help uh, remember to discuss with a director or work through physical choreographies uh, so we're all telling the same story and painting the same uh, picture when we're in rehearsal and performance this also turns into my checklist for pre-show which will be the prop and if you've got multiple personnel at the foley table who the prop is going to start with this is great if you each have your own copy that you're doing fast transitions on if you're doing like an anthology show or a show where you have a couple of like breaks for turning the table over for next big intense sequences mm -hmm. uh then work notes or anything that i want i think it's important for us to talk through as an ensemble or work through kind of like you would uh a fight call before a traditionally right. staged show. Yep. Uh, mm -hmm. Anything that has like really intense vocalizations in succession with people. Like we did a crazy ricochet moment in a Western pastiche that involved my flexitone and a bunch of different actors being inside. Go, ah, ah, yeah. Before yeah. it actually hit its mark. Yeah. So here's an example of that. And then just a couple of extra fun things. This is the master pack list that I would have if I was doing a, an anthology show with a bunch of different tubs where one tub was each play. And oh, okay. the things that are in red indicate that that is the last piece they're in for the show. So I can push those aside or put those in that tub and push that entirely aside and pull up the next tub to start set up for the next play. Wow, this is amazing. <laughs> for a while. Amazing, amazing. Fantastic. Thank you so, for your time. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're welcome. So this is just a sample of my um of my text built together. How uh, the choreography is assigned color coordinated for the practitioners and also starting with their initials. And then you have a different color for the actors uh, vocalizations. And then uh, a couple of little like cheat sheety kind of things for timing stuff like if the character that speaks next is uh, about to walk after he says a line, 
that would be dramaturgically what I wanted to present if it wasn't obvious. Because more often than not, the audience will grok that whomever says a thing and then does is going to be the same person that does a thing next. But mm -hmm. we are here to help them enjoy the show as well. So I'll stop sharing my screen. Thank you very much. So we're we're right up at our time now, and I boy I learned a ton. Thank you so much. I, I enjoyed that so much. I So thank you, Ellie. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Michael, for uh, joining us for this hour and a half session. And I hope people out there got their questions answered and, and learned something. And, um, you know, Ellie, I hope you, you feel comfortable sharing some of those in the folder that we set up so that people can really have the time to really look. Because I know, I, I bet there was people out in the audience going, I want that, I want that. So, uh, you know, um, so thank you so much. Uh, next up, we have acting for audio and uh, at 2.45, and I know you're going to all want to stick around for that. So thank you again, panelists. It's been a pleasure. I hope I get to work with you all soon, one of these days. And um, I really mean that. And um, thank you. So thank you. Thanks so much for stepping We're running in. a little late, so good night, folks. Yeah. Let's all do this in Canada in person <laughs> next year. Yes, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, you seem to me to be a connoisseur of the best of radio drama, in which case, make sure you're subscribed to the Monday Matinee Feed. There we have our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio drama. So yeah, either the main Mutual Audio Network feed for all types and genres of audio drama, or the Monday Matinee. And we'll see you there. The Mutual Audio Drama Network, where we listen and imagine together.